You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, disciple-making people. Good to have you with us today. Welcome to the podcast. And remember, the place for a man, for a woman complete in all their powers is in the fight. And right now, today, somewhere in the world, making disciples of the nation. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, I'm excited about the program today. Going to have a friend come on here in a little bit and talk about First and Second Kings. Before we get to that, however, just a couple of news items we probably ought to review. Uh, I saw this in Christianity Today. I think I've talked about this to some extent already, but I uh, wanted to get back to it, particularly because is it not October that a lot of churches decide, let's do something nice for our pastor I, this is well, Pastor Appreciation Month or whatever it is. I, I I never think there's a bad time to appreciate your pastor. And a lot of people say, well, you know, how hard does he work? I mean, you know, sermon per week. I mean, what else is there? And, of course, there's a lot more than simply that. We know that. But John Brown from Fox News. So Fox News is picking up on this. And this is the headline that kind of captured my eyesight. Uh, Pastors battle skyrocketing burnout amid politics and the pandemic. And they say it's wearing on the soul. A staggering 42% of pastors have considered quitting full-time ministry, according to a recent study. Now, we have talked about that study on this podcast before. comes from... Uh, Barna, I believe. But why is it that there's such burnout? And what is it with burnout? Now, what I've always told my friends is, listen, if you think you're burned out, just go read, you know, uh, John Wesley sent Francis Asbury from England over here to sort of reinvigorate the Methodist movement. And it went from a very small, almost minuscule denomination to the leading one in the world, well, in America at least, during Asbury's lifetime, he worked, he worked, he worked, and what a hard, every day of his life just seemed to bring hardship, really hard, hard things in his life. Nonetheless, guess what? And, well, what I say is, listen, if you think you're burned out, Pastor, just go read a couple of pages, yeah, that's all it takes, a couple of pages of Francis Asbury's journal, and you'll decide I've got no, <laughs> I've got no right to be burned out. But this gives a little, more, a little bit more analysis as, as to what has happened. And, and as a pastor, I kind of sense here what they're talking about. So bitter divisions over politics. And boy, no kidding. I was just in a 5Q discipleship meeting with a bunch of pastors a, a few moments ago. And we were talking over this very thing, politics in the church. And we're not talking about uh, church politics. We're talking about people looking to politics as the answer and the bifurcation of America over politics, just this team effort we give to one side or the other side of this, the, the, the political dynamics of this country, it's just, it's just wearying on the soul. Anyway, bitter divisions over politics and the pandemic, says Fox News, have seeped into churches and led to increasing rates of burnout, job burnout, among pastors. 
and so a study of Protestant pastors conducted in March by Barna suggested that unprecedented numbers are thinking about quitting the ministry. The poll showed that rates of burnout among pastors had risen dramatically during the past year. And again, that 42% of ministers wondering if they should abandon their vocation altogether. And that number marked an increase of 13 percentage points since Barna's similar poll in January of 2021. So just 29% felt that that. So one of the things that they this Fox News does, which any good news program today does, that they'll give you the general information. Then they go down into, hey, let's view this from a particularity or two. So they go down to a guy named Richard White, 33 years as pastor of a Presbyterian church in Montreat, North Carolina. He said he and his staff first experienced a flood of energy as they scrambled to adjust to COVID-19 protocols they thought would only last for two weeks. So they did the best to navigate the live stream stuff, the cameras, uploading the church website and other technical issues. But when the pandemic began to drag on indefinitely amid the nation's political firestorm, that energy waned and was replaced by what white described as get a load of this now a grinding spirit that settled over him about eight months in he began to experience decision fatigue when he defined as fearing that no matter what decision you make there's going to be a group that's not happy and that group will be vocal i'm just telling you pass our appreciation Month is coming up, and why not go ahead and celebrate your guy or your gal, as the case may be. It's tough out there. And that grinding thing, no no one's saying, man, I'm, well, I say no one. Lots of people say they're broken, and a lot of pastors say they're broken. But, you know, that, that's not the problem, broken pastors. This is pastors that experienced the grind. And this COVID stuff, the ridiculous way, in my estimation, that we handled it, and of course, the the politics thing, and then all, every other thing that you throw into the pastor's uh, leadership dynamic, it's just been tough. Just you know, been tough. I, I found this too. This is from Christianity Today. This is a guy who just considers himself. <laughs> I, I, I look, I'm trying to try to find it here. He says, "I'm an old codger, <laughs> so I'm authorized to do get off my lawn rants." So this guy decides, I'm going to rant a little bit, and I think he's got a point. He said, stop applauding pastors who publicly confess their sins. Stop it. Stop it. When pastors admit wrongdoing, we should respond with quiet sobriety, not clapping, and not standing ovations. And so here he goes. I mean, this is, this is good stuff. This is from Dave Miller, a guy who's at Southern Hills Baptist Church in Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, he says, okay, a uh, couple, it's been now a couple weeks, but when he wrote this, it was yesterday. So yesterday, Matt Chandler stood before his congregation to admit to inappropriate text interactions with a woman other than his wife and to announce he was taking a leave of absence. He, he withheld a lot of details apparently. And he says, listen, I'm not going to address Chandler's sin. And I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do that. What I am going to say is this. After he did that, after he confessed to his congregation, the church gave him a standing ovation. And then another pastor stood to define the, define the narrative, define the narrative by telling them what their ovation meant. And then congregants, congregants gave Chandler another round of applause. 
And so here we go. <laughs> here, here is what, by the way, I'm not laughing because I agree. Why are we giving standing ovations to the declaration of I've sinned? Dave Miller says this. He says, I'm annoyed at this response. I'm an old codger. <laughs> so I'm authorized to, and by the way, I'm an old codger too. So I get to join in with his get off my lawn rants. I'm, I'm joining in with this guy. When did it become appropriate to give standing ovations to those who have committed disqualifying or near disqualifying sins in ministry? You might remember, he says, Jules Woodson's public story of sexual abuse. After years of denial and evasion, the pastor who had abused her years earlier stood before his large congregation and gave a sanitized version of his failings. He received a wildly supportive standing ovation. More recently, another pastor uh, stood up to confess an affair. Again, putting it in the best possible light, which is what we would do when we confess. And the woman involved came forward to tell the truth. She accused the pastor of statutory rape and some of the ugliest actions unmanageable. Of course, the pastor got a standing ovation. Now, we can only hope that both of those churches came to later regret their actions. Nonetheless, they honored and applauded abusers. In doing so, they heaped condemnation on survivors and added to their suffering. And so the ranter, the old codger, Dave Miller says, when a church leader stands to confess sin, it's time for lament and a time for tears. Repentance requires honesty, humility, and sorrow, not managing appearances, controlling the narrative, or hiding the facts. It's textbook manipulation. Unfortunately, in many megachurches and elsewhere too, people are conditioned to see their pastors in their godlike terms. So when he confesses a sin, they jump to a redemptive narrative and respond with enthusiastic applause. It has to stop. Dave Miller says it has to stop. We should not applaud confessions of sin. Ovations serve no spiritual purpose. And in these situations, especially, they only cause hurt and harm. He said, I, I get churches love their pastors. Churches love their preachers. As the pastor says, I, I can appreciate that. But listen, if your pastor stands up and confesses sin, you do not applaud sin. And you do not applaud him or her in their sin. We don't cheer it. We grieve over it. Save the standing ovations for the football field. Now, there's coming at pastors two different ways. Hey, pastors are clearly burned out. You probably ought to figure out a way to celebrate them. That's the first story here. The second story here <laughs> is when they confess sin to you from the pulpit, it's not a time for a standing ovation. It just isn't. All right, a sponsor of the life-changing discipleship program is Teleos Press. So lots of really great books at teleospress.com. Teleos, by the way, is the Greek word for whole, complete, and perfect. It's spelled T-E-L-E-I-O-S. So go to teleospress.com for a lot of wonderful volumes, including the 5Q Method of Discipleship. And by the way, there's a new book up there, uh, The New 
discipleship in the home. So these are going to be great volumes for you. And it's going to teach you more about how to be a disciple maker for Jesus, a serious disciple maker for Jesus. So check it out, teleospress.com. All right. Always love to have my friends in here, my scholarly friends, guys that know a whole lot more about life and scholarship than I do. And just like to let them loose on a book of the Bible. So they teach us about discipleship from what they know out of their deep reservoir of brilliance. And today we have with us Dr. David Schreiner, who happens to be the Old Testament professor at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Hey, Dave. Hey, Matt. What's up? Okay, so we are excited today about what you know about a couple of books, and we're going to put them together today. Now, maybe that's not fair to the books and maybe not fair to you, and maybe not fair to our listening audience, but I just thought we'd do First and Second Kings together and by the way, you have just written a commentary about First and Second Kings. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I wrote it a long time ago, but it just got published. You, yeah. know, how, you know how long <laughs> these things take. Um, yeah, it, it, it was just recently, it was in Oct- August is when it was released. Uh, it's First and Second Kings, a teaching, preaching, commentary. It's been put out by Kriegel Academic. So if you go to Kriegel Academic, Google Kriegel Academic and, and, and type in, First and Second Kings. It's in the K Rooks commentary series. If you just type in First and Second Kings on their website, it'll come up. And uh, I wrote it with a pastor from uh, Milford, Indiana, and he did the preaching elements to it, and I did the exegetical element to it. Well, that's kind of fun. So two guys writing a commentary together. One guy is doing the serious academic work. The other guy is doing the preaching possibilities from First and Second Kings. Is that right? Yeah, and I set I set things up so I would do the I would do the exegetical work, the interpretive work, and I kind of would move into a discussion on theology and and then he would eventually take that up and then develop preaching ideas and preaching strategies based on the exegetical work. Yeah, I like that. Oh, very good. So congratulations, by the way, on the book. Just well, out. Thanks. Thank you. And first and second Kings. Uh, so Carrick's series and Kriegel Press. So go to Kriegel Press. Just, you know, get on your Kriegel Academic. Kriegel Academic. Okay. Yeah. Kriegel Academic. It's K-R-E-G-E-L. And uh, I think you're going to want the commentary. Get it. And uh, our friend Dave Schreiner put it together and you say, listen, this isn't just uh, some good information. This is the, these are brilliant ideas about first and second Kings. <laughs> oh, yeah. All we want to know is what they actually tried to tell. Us, yeah, right yeah okay so anyway you know what we do here on this right, part of the podcast right, we right. like to say uh, of the books of the bible what are the serious discipleship deals out of those books and of course i limit you to five there's probably 50 uh, there's right. probably a hundred the thought you know whatever there is we limit you to five and so kind of have a fun time with it so i'm going to ask you there uh dr dave shriner about the discipleship idea number one out of first and second kings yeah, I think I think the one of the first lessons that we learn in First and Second Kings is from the uh, what I think to be one of the most complicated lives in, in the entire Old Testament, and also one of the tr- most tragic lives in all the Old Testament, and that's Solomon. Um, I think there's a very lengthy discussion about Solomon, and I think one of the lessons that we learn about Solomon is that the ends do not justify the means. Mm, wow! Because this is a guy. When you look at this guy, um, he took Israel to great heights. Um, they expanded their influence geopolitically. Uh, he built new cities and reinforced new cities. He built the temple, did a lot of good things, had a lot of influence in the region. But in the process of doing that sort of stuff and making decisions in order to advance the influence of his kingdom, he also built all of that on some really shaky foundations. And when you look at his life and you look at the way he set up his taxation systems uh, and those types of things, and uh, he just created a lot of problems internally, and it all comes to a head. And it all comes to a head in First Kings 11, and that's 
the famous example of he loved many foreign women. And then you begin to read about the, uh, the apostate influences that came in with, uh, with respect to those marriages, came into the nation, not only affected him, but also affected the nation. And so you get a very complicated picture that really paints a really paints a, a, a negative. I would argue a negative picture of Solomon, where this guy levied, this guy hedged everything against what can I accomplish, and and in order to accomplish that, he compromised a lot, and it was through those compromises that eventually brought him down. So if you were to say, in a nutshell, the discipleship principle of all that is what exactly? Your you have to be. As concerned with where you're, go- as concerned with how you're getting somewhere, mm. as much as where you're going. Wow. So di- discipleship, there's always when you disciple people, there's always an end goal in mind. There's always a what do we want to achieve through this mentorship, and through this relationship, and those types of things. You always have to be conscientious about how you get that person there. My how goodness. do you get there? I-, I just thought of this. Is there a lesson here for uh, the church, the local church? Oh, and yeah. is there a lesson here? F- for the mega church. Yes, yes. I, I, I think there's a lot of places that you can go with this. It sounds like, a, well, is that really a discipleship principle? Yeah, I would argue it is, yeah. because there's a lot of implications you can take from that. As you already mentioned, as a church leader, what are the decisions you're making on a daily basis in order to get somewhere? We always talk about strategies, particularly in the local church. What's our strategy? What's our vision? You have an end goal. You have a, you have a point that you want to get to. How are you getting there? Mm. And what are the decisions that you are making in order to get there? And in those decisions, are you compromising anything? And it may seem like, oh, it's just this. No one will care. Or it really won't matter as everything comes out in the wash. Well, maybe it will. So the ends don't necessarily justify the means. So how soon after Solomon begins being king uh, do things start going off the rails? Well, we don't really know. Um, there's, you kind of have to, it's kind of a big puzzle and you kind of have to put it together. I mean, we're told in first Kings 11 that when he gets old, things really go off the rails with him. However, the seeds of those things happen early on because in first Kings chapter three, we're told, we're told he marries a princess of Egypt. Like right away. Right. Right. That's one of the first things we're told about him. One of the things you're, you're not supposed to do. Right. And, and, and that's a, that's a, that's. That tells us a lot of things, but most most clearly, it tells us about how he's going to operate. Mm. He's gonna he's gonna build his influence through establishing agreements with these neighboring nations and these foreign kings. And in order to do that, you marry them, you give your sons and your daughters away in marriage, and in the process of doing that, you also accommodate them, and so you accommodate their worship and that sort of thing. And so that's how those influences begin to creep in. It's a slow creep. You know, it, it and 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 um, it's a slow creep, but these started off bad almost from the get go. Yeah, and I would make that argument that that if from the very beginning we're given clues that his policies were off. Track. He needed a prophet to come in and stick his bony finger in the middle of his chest and say, "It's interesting. Dude. It's interesting." His dad had one of those people. Yep, David had one of those people that wasn't afraid to, um, you know, you know, poke him right there in the sternum and say, "Yeah, it's you, buddy. It's yep. you." Mm-hmm. He, it, interestingly enough, we don't have a prophetic interaction with Solomon. Wow. Okay. That's discipleship principle number one. It's a great one. It's a very important one for each of us to get our uh, hearts around. Number two. Yeah, I would say, you know, and I'll specify this, but, you know, don't let the wrong reasons drive your decisions. And so there are two examples that I think are kind of juxtaposed in the book of Kings. And, and there's a lot of stuff going on in First Kings 11 through 14. And one of the things that are going on is a guy by the name of Rehoboam is being put side by side with a guy named Jeroboam. 
Rehoboam is the uh, first king of Judah. The kingdom splits. So with David and Solomon, it's a unified kingdom. And then with Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, the kingdom splits. And the first king of Israel, the northern, the northern kingdom, is guiding Jeroboam. Jeroboam worked for Rehoboam, um, and yet he receives the prophetic endorsement uh, to become the first king of the north. But both of these guys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, make some bad decisions. And they make their decisions based on um, a desire to be respected and accepted. That's Rehoboam's big problem. Uh, and then Jeroboam makes some decisions based out of fear. He lets fear drive his decisions. And so when you begin to look at why these guys made the decisions that they do, Rehoboam's, like, Rehoboam's big failure happened immediately. Instead of serving his people, he decided he wanted to dominate them. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why did he make this decision? He had two groups of advisors telling him different things. Why did he go with the young guys? Why did he say, I'm going to dominate these people as opposed to serving these people? Because the story goes, the advisors, the older advisors that have been around the block, they were seasoned advisors, they worked for his father. They looked at him and they said, yeah, your father was hard. You need to serve these people. If you serve these people, they'll serve you. But you got to take it down a notch. And you got to realize your relationship with them. And the, it's the young guys that grew up with him. These are his bar buddies that I like to say. And, you know, what do you guys think of you? Oh, don't serve them. Heck no, don't serve them. Mm. Dominate them. Mm. And so he goes on this He goes on this insulting rant. And in the process, he basically says, no, I'm, I'm going to be even worse than my dad. Be, and, and at the heart of that is a desire to be respected. I mean, he has huge, Rehoboam has huge shoes to fill. And, and these are, these are um, concerns that every leader has. You know, am I going to be respected? How, how am I going to lead? You know, these are questions that every leader has to ask his or herself at the very beginning of their um, leadership. How am I going to lead? What is driving yes. your leadership right. style? And with Rehoboam, it was, I have to be accepted, period. And for Jeroboam? Jeroboam, it was fear. Jeroboam says, if these people continue to go down to Jerusalem and worship, I'm sunk. They're going to come after me. They're going to kill me. Mm. They're going to take away my throne. They're going to kill me. And they're going to go back to Judah. So he says... I'm going to build two places of worship. I'm going to put one up in Bethel and one uh, one up in Dan and one down in Bethel. Of course, that's a huge no-no because he's created two apostate worship sites, and those apostate worship sites become the poison that eventually brings down the northern kingdom. And 1 Kings 12 tells us that he was scared. It was fear hmm. that drove him to the decision. So as a leader, understand why you're making your decisions. Don't make your decisions on the wrong reason. And as a disciple maker, encourage the people that you're mentoring to understand that. Mm. So uh, fear shouldn't be the thing that drives us. Uh, a, an inordinate uh, a view towards respect, yeah. and I need to be respected, and you will respect me, shouldn't be driving our leadership style. What should be? Well, it's very interesting that the in 1 Kings 12 with Rehoboam, servant, ser, uh, servitude, servitude is the is the one that's juxtaposed to an absolute desire for accept for for acknowledgement and 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 dominance it's i'm going to be the leader versus i'm going to serve you hmm. and i think that's the at least in that instance i think that's the lesson you need to serve the people over whom you lead hmm. you need, that's the kind of posture and right you know we all talk about at one point it was really trendy to talk about servant leadership right and I think, you know, we, we kind of, you know, a lot of us chuckle now. Oh, that's, you know, that's so 1980s or 1990s or whatever it was. Early 2000s, I think is what it was. But either way, I mean, there's, there's, there's a reason why it became so popular. It's because there's a lot of truth to it. Hmm. And so, you know, I think that's the idea. I think 
I think there it's it we it says a lot if you are a leader that leads from posture of service. How can I serve the people over whom I lead? And you got a pretty serious uh, example of that in the Son of God, right? And that, yeah, absolutely. Jesus yeah. is the so f- first principle here when we t- look at it. First, Second Kings is how you get to where you're going on is pretty important. Mm. Uh, Solomon teaches us that. Uh, respect and fear are not adequate drivers of a good leadership style. It needs to be servanthood. How can I serve these people the way God wants me to serve them? Number three, stand up in the face of wrong, period. And this is where you go, Elijah and Elisha. This is where they come into play. These are guys, these are guys, these are prophets. And they're dealing with very influential kings in the north at a very critical time, sociopolitically speaking. And they are standing up to these kings, period. They are looking at them. They are defying them. They are mocking their, their in, in some instances, they're mocking their decisions in order to prove a point. And these guys just don't care what's at stake. They are going to do what they have been called to do, period. And they don't care whose toes they have to step on. And so I think that goes a long way for leadership. I think it goes a long way in discipleship to when we're mentoring and training the next generation. We have to instill in the people that we are mentoring, and as leaders, we have to show the people we serve that there is right, there is wrong, there is a moral standard. And, and, you know, you can't just say, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a gray thing. Well, no, not really. I mean, we can't always just say morality is a gray thing. And it's rel- No, no. There are instances where there are gray realities of life, and it's really hard to figure out what's right and wrong. But quite frankly, there's a lot of other parts in life where it's pretty clear. And in those moments where we know that what, is, what needs to happen, when we know that this is wrong, we stand up for that hmm. no matter what, period. So if you're leading a church— and you see people in your congregation doing things that are wrong, you confront that, period. It doesn't matter if it's a guy on the PPR committee. It doesn't matter if it's a guy on your administrative board. If they're doing something wrong, flirting with the lines of morality, potentially compromising other people's spiritual maturation and formation, you go after them. You go after that issue, and you deal with it, and you deal with it properly. And we, we, I think we live in a culture that doesn't have enough respect for that as, as you articulated just a moment ago, black and white world. Right. Uh, we, we love the gray. And yeah. we think, and we, we've convinced ourselves that most things are gray. Yes. Then that's the point. We've convinced ourselves that virtually everything is gray. And so, well, you don't understand me. So an old professor of mine, or actually an old friend of mine, old professor of yours, I think, uh, Bill Arnold yeah. wrote a book, uh, yes. with this title. Yes. There's a guy named Adam Hamilton yeah. in Kansas City, big mega church pastor, uh, and he wrote a book called Gray in a Black and White World. Yes. And Bill Arnold read that and thought, no, uh, Black and White in a Gray World is going to be the title of my book. And I tell you what, Bill Arnold did such a convincing job of talking about Black and White in a Gray World that I actually felt sorry for Adam Hamilton. Yeah. I actually felt sorry. He dismantled the argument. You've got to believe in that. You've got to believe there's a moral standard. You've got to believe there's right and wrong. Or you don't have much of a culture, and you're not going to have much of a church, and you're not going to have much of a disciple without that kind of right. instruction. Absolutely. Wow, good stuff. This is really great stuff. Yeah. Number four. Um, push people to revival. Hmm. As a leader, as a disciple, as a disciple maker, you need to encourage people the, about the importance of revival. You need to educate them on revival. And this is, you know, what, what do I mean by revival? You know, I don't necessarily mean let's go to camp meetings every other, every other month. No, I, I mean times of spiritual renewal. 
And as you're leading a congregation or you're, or you're making disciples and you're mentoring people, you need to let them know about the importance of spiritual renewal. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. It can happen in a church service. It can happen in a retreat. It can happen in a just, you know, a, a sustained period over a couple weeks or something. But there comes a moment when everybody needs to realize I've gotten to another level or I've recommitted. You know, there's a, there's a certain level of intensity that comes along with revival that energizes us and, and encourages us to just, you know, up our game and recommit and those types of things. So revival is a bit ill-defined, I'll admit, but it's really important to push people and to demonstrate to people the importance of these moments in our lives, the ebbs and flows of our lives, the ebbs and flows of our faith. And, and even in the, the lowest moments, there's hope. There's hope. And God wants us to get to that next moment when we are absolutely floored by who he is Hmm. and what he wants to do with us. And that's really the essence of a revival. It is a moment of spiritual clarity when we realize, oh my goodness, God God is this and God wants to do that. And that's amazing. That floors me. One of my favorite places to go to in a Bible, uh, Dave, I I spend time every morning in five Psalms and a proverb. Mm Mm-hmm. Another, right. lots of things. I do about right. 10 things, but mm-hmm. that's, that's the guts of the program. And uh, I'll only take one paragraph of Psalm 119 because mm. it's so long, right. 176 right. verses, something crazy. My favorite one of these uh, is, starts with uh, paragraph number 20 in Psalm 119, starts with, uh, I'm looking down at 153, but it has in that paragraph the word revive three times. Mm-hmm. And here's the teaching. Revive me according to your word. Revive me according to your judgments. Revive me according to your faithfulness. Mm -hmm. It's not just simply a revival of emotion. It's not just simply a revival of expectation. It's not simply a revival of, hey, we're really excited about what God's doing. It's got to have a solid root system in something more than yourself. Right. And I think this is why Hezekiah and Josiah's reforms are 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 so celebrated is because those moments of revival were rooted in a realization of what God has done for them in their past, in their history, what he did for them, and and therefore what he continues to, what they're, he wants to continue to do. They're rediscovering Torah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it's particularly with Josiah, it's Sefer HaTorah. It's the book of Moses, the book of the, book of the teaching, the book of the law. That's what they find. And that becomes the backbone of that moment of revival. And so as leaders and as mentors, you know, when we're mentoring people, we have to let people know that these are huge moments, massive moments. And we should, we should look for these moments, anticipate these moments. And when they happen, relish those moments. Hmm. Let me review here. Uh, we start talking about Solomon. How you get to where you're going is pretty important. Mm-hmm. And uh, he chose a bad path. Uh, the second thing you brought up was... Uh, the two kings after him, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, ruled out of fear. That's Jeroboam. And respect for Rehoboam, that's not enough. That's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Elijah and Elisha came along later and say, hey, we need some moral standards here. And they call the kings back to the moral standards, the black and white standards, the up and down standards of Scripture. And they call the populace there, too. Because remember, that, Mount Carmel, it's in front of everybody. Wow, we is it ever. And then, of course... Yeah, you just made uh, the serious discipleship point. Always push your people, your church, your, the, your disciple to revival. And it better be something more than simply elevated feelings and yes, emotions. Absolutely. It's something that's got to be rooted in the Word. Right. All right. right. 
these are really great. Thank you for these. Number five. The last one, know there's hope no matter what, because that's the way that book ends, right? First and second Kings ends with this really peculiar statement about um, Jehoiachin. He's in exile and he's in jail. He's been carted off 10 years earlier. And um, the book ends with him being released. Yes, he's on house arrest. Yes, he's still in Mesopotamia. But the fact that he is out of jail and he's, and he's eating amongst the privileged of Mesopotamia, I have interpreted that, and a lot of other people do. I'm not the only person that does this, but it's a little subtle statement of hope that there's still a future. We may not necessarily know exactly what it's going to look like, but there's a future because we're God's people. And no matter what we have done, there's going to be room for grace. There's going to be room for restoration. There's hope. And so I think this is a really, really, perhaps perhaps one of the most important principles that we would, we'll ever learn, whether we're leading a church as a pastor or just a leader or whether we're mentoring people, we're going we're gonna to hear about crap that's happened, just bad stuff that's happened to people. And we have to let them know that there's hope. Mm-hmm. You may not, these people may not be able to see the hope. They may not know what the hope's going to look like. They may not know what restoration's going to look like, but it's there and it's coming and you've got to be willing to be patient and trust and trust in the mercy of God. Wow. Wonderful, beautiful, extraordinary stuff. Good. Thank you. Five serious lessons from First and Second Kings about discipleship. And by the way, we've been with David Schreiner today. Dave uh, is a professor here at Wesley Biblical Seminary, Old Testament professor, and just written a commentary on First and Second Kings, the uh, Kirk's series from Kriegel Academic Press. So go check that out, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. If, if he wrote it, you will enjoy it. He only writes great stuff. Well, I, I, thanks, man. No, I said it right here. I mean, it, <laughs> I it's now that. public. Everybody knows that's what I think. <laughs> All right, it's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Program with Matt Friedemann. Check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship. And by the way, got a Twitter account now. Yeah, go to Matt Friedemann. Hey, come on, link up with me on these places, Facebook and Twitter, and check out our books at Amazon.com. Just type in Matt Friedman in the search engine and see all that's offered. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life-Changing Discipleship today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. Yeah.